1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. This scripture has served as our theme for this summer as we have talked about what will I do with my faith? A faith that Peter says is more precious than gold. And let's be reminded of these words once again. So be truly glad there's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. I want to take you back to the year 1964 when my dad was 16 years old. It's his junior year in high school, and there were two congregations near where his, he and his family, my grandparents, where they were going to church at that time and where my granddad was preaching. This was in Nevada, Nevada County, Arkansas. There were two churches, Hickory Grove and Pleasant Hill. Each had about 25 to 30 members. They needed a preacher. And at age 16 years old, my dad answered that call and said, I will come. And so for two years, until he graduated high school, every other Sunday, he would rotate going to those two churches. Looking back on that, I know Dad recalls the many handshakes and pats on the back and the encouragement. But one of the things that took place in 1964 that is so important that still resides in the life of my father is faith. A faith that he saw in action with those people and those families in those two little country churches. Dad, aren't you grateful for those people? If you go back to those churches now, they're not churches. One of them, I think, is a local residence. Somebody's living there. And another one, it's just closed up. And that, the sad thing, that is what's happening to so many of our smaller congregations in the rural parts of our country. But I'm thankful that for years, little country churches like that took a chance on somebody in high school. Took a chance to say, come be with us and come teach us from the Word of God. Now my dad called it preaching back then. Probably the people in those two churches said that he was giving talks. As a preacher, I can tell you one of the last things that we want to be told is you gave a good talk. <laughs> but I can tell you this, even though I had no idea, because I was not even thought of at that time, who those families were in those two little churches. They have shaped my life and my faith because 
they shape my father's. You see, what Peter says about faith is so vital because it's a faith that's so strong that we don't keep it to ourselves, but we strive to pass it on to somebody else. That's not by accident. That is the divine nature and the divine plan of God. And I'm thankful for those two little churches. And I'm thankful that for the last 51 years, my dad <clears throat> has answered the call to preach the gospel. And so all the way from Prescott, Arkansas, to Clarendon, Arkansas, to Comanche, Oklahoma, and Dallas, Texas, and Batesville, Arkansas, and Ardmore, Oklahoma, and Duncan, Oklahoma, and here in Paris, and Arlington, and now for the last 17 years in Texarkana. My mom and dad have faithfully, side by side, been partners in ministry. Mom and dad, thank you for your example. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you for what you mean to this kingdom. And back in March, it was, I've shared this with you, but I'm going to share it again tonight. Back in March, it was an honor as the Walnut Church in Texarkana, along with our family, as we honored my dad for his 50 years of preaching. I think dad is doing some of his best preaching right now. And I'm glad that he could be here tonight to talk to us about faith and to share with us from the Word of God. Dad, I'm going to ask that you come up and I'm going to pray over you and then turn it over to you. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you for the day. Father, we thank you for the faith that we possess, all because of you. And Father, as we are reminded in your holy word, it is a faith that's more precious than gold. And help us to never take it for granted, but to help us, Father, to always keep it alive, help us to keep it growing, and may we strive to pass our faith down to more and more people. Father, I thank you for my mom and dad. And I pray tonight that you would be with dad as he opens up your word and as he proclaims a message from his heart, from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. My goodness. Thank you, son, for those words. And I don't think the congregation's ever given me any applause, much less a standing ovation, but I, I saw that happen the Sunday Patrick was announced as the preacher for this church. And I told him that day, I said, Patrick, you better soak that one up because you won't get many standing ovations in the church, I promise you. <laughs> well, there's, there's not a Sunday that's gone by since 1964 that I haven't thought of those two little country churches. And I made a trip Less than a year ago, last fall, uh, I went over to Prescott where Dad preached and I traveled around the county and I found, I knew where the church buildings were, but the one that the people were living in, it had changed so much they'd planted trees around it. It was, it was kind of hard to recognize it. But I went out to the Pleasant Hill Church and um, I know those two congregations basically, I don't know, 70s, 80s, somewhere, they just 
got down to just a handful of folks and they all went into the church at Prescott. So uh, I was looking around the old Pleasant Hill Church, the cemeteries out there, and to, uh, to really have a reunion with the folks I knew, I had to walk through the cemetery and I said hello to Carl Billingsley and I said hello to the Harris family and uh, some of those other folks that were great people. Uh, but I, I peeked through a broken glass in the window and the old attendance board was still up. And uh, thank goodness we don't have those hanging everywhere now just to kind of keep up with numbers instead of people. But um, attendance, I guess the last Sunday they met, Gene, six, six. But uh, anyway, those were good days. My associate minister at the Pleasant Hill Church of Christ was Lyndall Campbell, the brother of Glenn Campbell. And he was a singer. Now, you know how high Glenn can sing, still can, even with his Alzheimer's. I mean, he can still sing and play. I heard a Glenn Campbell say one time, there's not much I can do, but I can play a guitar. <laughs> but Lyndall Campbell, uh, every other Sunday would preach there, and I called him my associate minister. And uh, Lyndall had a great tenor voice as well. Good people, good thoughts. Well... Good thoughts when I stand in this church building and look at this church as well because it's, it's coming home. I mean, coming back to Paris is, is coming home. And uh, maybe before too long, you don't have to announce this over inside the city limits of Texarkana or Bowie County, but maybe before too long we'll call this home again. And that's our goal. Be praying about that. My elders said... Well, stand up. I mean, no. <laughs> if you're going to clap, just stand up. No, I, the elders, uh, years ago when Kurt and Melissa moved over here, I think that's been 10 years ago now, uh, the first Sunday after Kurt and Melissa moved over here to, to Paris, my elders said, well, all three of your kids are now in Paris and your grandkids, and so we figure you and Linda will be moving to Paris soon. I said, well, my answer to that is I plan to go to heaven from one of two places, Texarkana or Paris, and I'm just going to let the Lord call the shots. But the Lord and I have been talking about it lately, and I think he's leaning toward Paris. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know if we were having hot dogs and hamburgers, I wouldn't be in too big a hurry tonight because... Uh, they could keep those warm, but you can't keep ice cream cold very long, you know? And you sure don't want it to get warm. So I'm looking forward to sharing some ice cream with you tonight. I know there will be no bluebell there tonight. Some of you folks have gotten lazy and quit making homemade ice cream. And every year, the 4th of July week, we have a big ice cream social over at the church in, at Walnut. And people got to bring in bluebell ice cream. And so I would make a fit about, we're, we're talking homemade ice cream, folks. We're not talking Bluebell or Yarnells. How many of you know about Yarnells? Yeah, that's made up in Searcy, Arkansas. My mother thought it was the best ice cream ever made. But uh, one of my elders showed up at an ice cream supper a few years back, and he presented me with uh, a big container of Bluebell ice cream, just to be tacky. And to be more tacky, it was filled with ice. I mean, he didn't even have ice cream in it. So 
Anyway, we'll have some ice cream in a minute. Genuine faith. That's the key. If I ask tonight, do you believe? And by the way, when Tim Young spoke, I was here and he gave a tremendous lesson on faith. If I said, do you believe? We'd all raise our hands, we believe. But do we believe to the point that our faith is real, genuine, authentic? It's not just a head faith based on I've read the Bible and I have knowledge of the Word of God and I believe what the Bible says. But the kind of faith that I'm really talking about tonight goes a, a little step further to the point of, of trust. It's one thing to say I believe. It's another thing to say I trust. One of the best stories I heard about that was the fellow years ago who was walking a tight wire across Niagara Falls and people would come for miles around to see him walk across that tight wire. And then he decided, not only can I walk across it, but I can push, how many of you believe I could push a wheelbarrow across this tight rope on Niagara Falls? And, oh, everybody clapped. They thought that was going to be wonderful. And he said, now, who wants to volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> so people could believe he could do it, but no one volunteered because there was not enough trust that he could do it, and they would trust their lives on that. In 1998, Patrick and Dad and uh, Mike Monroe, our educational minister in Arlington, and myself, along with about 30 other people, were fortunate to make a trip to Israel. It was just a seven-day trip, one week, out of Jerusalem and all in Israel, and we covered the, the country. But one day we were on the Sea of Galilee and we went up to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and visited uh, the village of Capernaum, which was pretty well uh, the headquarters for Jesus' ministry, at least in the, in the region around Galilee. And then we went out just west of Galilee in the rolling mountains, or west of Capernaum in the rolling mountains of Galilee on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there our guide said, in all likelihood, somewhere in this immediate vicinity is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And they call that area the Mount of Beatitudes. It was there that Jesus preached his very first sermon, his very first public discourse, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read it in 15 to 20 minutes. You can read it with much meaning in probably 30 minutes. And those words have literally changed the world. And so while we were there, our guide said, as we were sitting uh, kind of in an amphitheater area that was rather steep, he said, would someone like to volunteer to come down where I am and read the Beatitudes aloud. Well, my hand went up. I wanted to experience that. I wanted to, he said, you know, it's a natural amphitheater here, and the acoustics are unbelievable. How many of you have ever stood in the rotunda of the Texas Capitol? You ever stood right there in the middle of that star? And it's kind of like it is right here. I mean, when you talk, 
when you say anything, it, it, the acoustics are just phenomenal. And so standing there uh, in a lower area of the valley as our tour people were up there on the hillside, I was privileged to read these words aloud somewhere close to where Jesus first spoke to him. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Eight, maybe ten, depending on how you might count them. And this is how Jesus began his public ministry of preaching and teaching. Technically, I think the last part of chapter 4 should really be tied in to the first two verses of chapter 5. And here's what the last paragraph in chapter 4 says. Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I mean, Jesus, as we would say, he begins his ministry with a bang. He's gone through the 40 days of temptation in the wilderness with Satan, and he's overcome him with the Word of God and the power of the strength of God abiding in Jesus. He was able to withstand those temptations. He's gone about calling some of the men to be fishers of men, and he has been preaching and proclaiming the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom. Mark introduces the ministry of Jesus simply by saying, and Jesus came preaching. Jesus came preaching. So there were other things that Jesus had taught, but this is the one that seems to really encapsulate everything that Jesus had probably been saying up to this point in time. This is the summary of the principles of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And I would have us to believe that Jesus is saying these things with a specific group of people in mind. It says that those who were following him 
he called his disciples. His disciples came to him. And that's when he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Well, I mean, after all, there were a lot of folks, multitudes, crowds of people that were following Jesus. Some undoubtedly came because they could get something out of it. There was a benefit. Jesus could heal people. Jesus could make people well again. He could make people walk again. He could make the blind see. And I mean, if those kind of things were happening, surely there were folks that came just to see if they might get in on the fringe benefits of being a follower of Jesus. But this word disciple is a special word. It means someone who's really committed. Someone who is determined to be a student of the person who's doing the talking, the person who's leading the group. And so Jesus was healing, but he was also preaching and proclaiming, and he was teaching. And he had in mind, I think, to lay a foundation for what Christianity is all about. And if there's anything that our world needs today, it is to be able to see authentic Christianity in practice. What the world needs to see is people who have genuine faith, <clears throat> people who are genuinely, authentically Christian. And undoubtedly, the greatest obstacle to the spread of Christianity is those who claim to be Christians but do not live up to the ideals that Jesus has taught. And guess what? That's the kind of people Jesus was talking to on this occasion. Because he has in mind some folks <clears throat> that are the religious leaders of the day. If you'll look in Matthew 5 and verse 20, I think it's one of the key verses in the whole sermon. I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there were people in Jesus' day who really thought they had it right, and they did not have it right. They were the ones who said, follow us. We know the answers. We've got it figured out. We're the religious people. And Jesus, I think, would tell us, as he told them, I didn't come to make you religious. I came to make you righteous. There are a lot of folks that are converted to religion. When Paul went to Athens, what did he say? When he saw all those idols, and then here's an idol to an unknown God, I perceive that in all things you are very, what? Religious, one translation says. Another says superstitious. Very religious. I know people that are members of civic clubs in every town I've lived, and they religiously participated in those civic clubs. And in some instances, people have replaced other things <coughs> Uh, replace their Christianity with other things and that has become their religion. So I want us to understand that Jesus didn't come to offer a new religion. He came to make men right with God. The world was religious when Jesus came. There were religious people in Athens, religiously wrong. 
There were scribes and Pharisees trying to keep the law of Moses and saying that they were doing a very good job of it. But Jesus says, but you're hypocrites. And I think we have to think in terms of the, the significance of that verse to appreciate the sermon that Jesus is talking about because here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the first 12 verses we've read tonight serve as a re representative of the kind of character a Christian is to be, the character we are to have, the kind of person I am to be. And then following that in Matthew 5, 13 through chapter 7 and verse 29, it's not the character that we have, it's the conduct that we demonstrate because of the character that we have, you see? You know, the Bible's full of uh, passages that give us lists of things, like the Christian graces and the fruit of the Spirit, qualifications of elders and deacons, and sometimes we, we treat those like they're sort of a check-off list and they're an inventory of, of the qualities that we're to have. And sometimes we even think that it's kind of a pick and choose. You know, what out of this list do I really want to major in? And that's not the case. None of those lists are all-inclusive. But when writers of that time, even people that weren't writing Scripture, would make lists like that, and it was sort of this. This is the kind of person we're talking about, etc., etc., etc. You see what I mean? And so when Jesus gives these Beatitudes, this is not a checklist. Well, I think I will, I will be a person poor in spirit, but don't ask me to be a peacemaker. You see, And I think the poor in spirit of verse 3 is the foundation for all of it. It's like in some of those lists I just mentioned, especially about qualities of church leaders. It says they are to be, and here's the key one, above reproach or blameless. And then everything else falls in line. And Jesus, I believe, is saying if you're poor in spirit, all these other things will happen. These are qualities that deal with the relationship we have first with God and then with man. With God, we're to be poor in spirit. We're to grieve and mourn. We're to be meek and gentle. We're to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And when our relationship to man is concerned, we're to be merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers, and we're to take persecution in stride. So Jesus here is using this word and I know from the King James we've probably carried it over into even our contemporary time, and we still, as I'd read tonight, we like the word blessed. We could just as easily say blessed. One translation says happy. I have a little problem with that because in our society, if I said happy hour, what would you think? Okay, you know, so if you want to be happy, go to happy hour. Happiness in our day and time is dependent upon what happens to us. And the kind of happiness that Jesus is talking about, this state of blessedness, this blessed feeling, and I like this translation, congratulations. You like that? And one of our authors has written a book on the Beatitudes, and guess what he titled his book? the applause of heaven, and it's about the Beatitudes. And so what I think is being said here, Jesus 
is saying, if you're this kind of person, this is the kind of blessing that's going to come to you, and congratulations for being that kind of person because the world needs more people like that. And when you look at the Beatitudes, and we're not doing an exhaustive study of them tonight, but think about this. They, they portray a philosophy of life that is totally opposite to what the world tells us. This is not, this is not the thinking of the world that if you'll be poor in spirit, if you'll humble yourself and empty yourself, you will be greatly rewarded. No, you've got to be number one. You've got to climb the ladder. You've got to be successful if you're going to get anything out of life, if you're going to have some great reward given to you. And blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who understand that there are some things in life that we need to grieve over, our sins, the problems of pain and anguish that people are going through. And yet, if you are a person who mourns, you will be comforted. You see, Jesus, this is all paradoxical teaching when it's put in perspective of how the world looks at life. But just think about this one thought tonight. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here is not commending poverty. He's not saying you have to be on the lower level of life and just almost have not even the necessities of life. What is he commending? It is poverty of spirit, the poor in spirit. I like to think of it as the person who is spiritually bankrupt, who has come to a point in life to recognize I need to be totally reliant upon God and not reliant upon myself. And again, it goes against the grain of Western civilization thinking. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get on with life and go out there and tackle it. Jesus says, humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Matter of fact, you will be the person who is in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew's phrase. He uses it 32 times. He doesn't use the kingdom of God, but four. But I will tell you they're one and the same. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Sometimes the gospel writers just talk about the kingdom. And Jesus is talking about it here previous to the establishment of the church. And I know that we have for years said, well, the kingdom of heaven is the church. The kingdom of God is the church. And I believe that is true to some extent. But Jesus is saying there are going to be people in the kingdom of heaven and the church hadn't even been established. What is this kingdom we're talking about? It's not of the world. It is of heaven. It is not of Satan. It is of God. And what we're discussing here is Jesus is saying, I'm looking for people who will allow God to rule and reign in their life. 
The kingdom of heaven is not a realm, it's not a location, it's not at a particular church building or a given state or nation or any locale here upon this earth. The kingdom of heaven is something that we can become a part of regardless of those things. You see, we have a relationship with God. Now, is that, is that contrary to it being the church? I don't think so. But Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven before he ever talks about upon this rock I'll build my church. And so the church then, I think, becomes a very uh, visible aspect of the people who represent the kingdom of heaven. But it really has to do with God's rule and reign in our life. Now let's talk about those scribes and Pharisees a moment. Oh yeah, I mean, we can get after this, can we? Boy, let's sick them, John, because we know that they were out of order. But Jesus said, listen, whatever they tell you to do, you do it. Just don't do like they do. What do they do? Oh, they give their alms, and they pray, and they preach on the street corners, and they fast. And he said, in every instance, they do so to be seen of men. We need to be real careful because Jesus was really hard on religious people and he needed to be because their focus was not on God, their focus was on self. There are many ways you could go with that in the church today, folks. I'm not saying the church is made up of scribes and Pharisees, but we need to be really hard on ourselves when we think everything down at the church and in my life should focus on me instead of on God. And that was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. If you haven't read the 23rd chapter of Matthew lately, read it. And Jesus pronounces woes upon those people. He, he pronounces a curse upon these scribes and Pharisees. Let me just read a, a portion. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, uh, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. They were giving 10% of the little plants that they were growing out there in the flower bed, but they had no justice, mercy, faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup of the dish. Inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Down in verse 28, even so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What's Jesus attacking here? He's attacking their hypocrisy. You go down to Nancy's to eat breakfast in the morning, and I highly recommend it, or Miss Nita's, or a few other places here in town. I'm, I'm getting really well acquainted with these breakfast places around here. But if you go in there and they, send, they put a coffee cup in front of you and it looks really nice on the outside, but about the time you start to lap a lip around it, you see egg yolk around the inside. There's not a person here that isn't going to say, I need a new coffee cup. And Jesus says these people are like dishes that have been washed on the outside but nobody scrubbed the inside so there was three kinds of religion i guess you could say in jesus's day among the scribes and pharisees and i'm going to wrap this up there was a head religion 
And the Pharisees were a part of it. They trusted in their knowledge. There was a hand religion where they trusted in their deeds. And they did good things and they bragged about it and wanted everybody to know about it. And Jesus said they have their reward. Christ is looking for people who devoted their heart to God. There's not anything wrong with knowledge, especially if it's knowledge of God's Word. There's not anything wrong with doing good deeds. But we can't trust either one of those things to get us into heaven. I mean, it's not going to be a pop test on Judgment Day, folks. And can you name all the tribes and all the kings and all the prophets? That's fine to teach our kids that, and it's okay for us to know that. But if you can't sing the books of the New Testament and the books of the Old Testament, I don't think it's going to keep you out of heaven. And I know that there's not going to be a ledger there of how much you've done and didn't do and see which one outweighs the other. But I believe Jesus is concerned about this. Did you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so here's the, here's the issue. If our, I'm going, to put a, I'm going to put me in the picture. If our righteousness is not better than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And with our legalistic minds, we say, well, how can we have a better righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees had? Recognize that self-righteousness won't get it. We need the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. And that's the answer. God made Jesus, this is scripture, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we, listen to this, that we might become, be something that we're not, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the kind of righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. Paul learned it. Paul had been self-righteous. He said, I, I, wanted to, I found Jesus. I wanted to be found in him and not have a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ. Boy, when we get that right, folks, we have reason for God to say congratulations. And I wish Jesus could have said that to the scribes and Pharisees. Instead of saying congratulations, he said, woe unto you. What would the Lord say to you? Will the real Christian please stand up? And if we want to know what one looks like, we start with the Beatitudes. Read the Sermon on the Mount and keep on reading. Because there's other things in there that will teach us how we can reflect the image of Jesus in our lives. God bless us to that end. It is time to eat ice cream. Thank you for being attentive and being patient with me tonight. I hope they packed those freezers good. because We're going to have a good time in fellowship tonight. I'd like to close with a prayer. Is that okay, Patrick? Let's bow. Father, thank you for this midweek service. Thank you for those who have come who love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you that we're here because of our love for you and not out of a sense of duty, not because we think we've got to be here to get to heaven, but because we want to be here and we know we're going to heaven 
And because of that, we love to be with your people, to praise and to sing and to listen to your word and to be encouraged. Bless us this night as we leave this place. In Christ's name, amen.